Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. You heard the intro right. This is the highly informing, overperforming show on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Hey, you like that intro, Patrick? I I did that just for you. Pretty good. This is our second show on the air. They invited us back. I don't know why, um, but apparently we were we were decently well received for the first show. But we, we're excited. We got a good show planned for you. Last show, we were pretty optimistic about investing. Um, today's show, we're talking about market bubbles and the Adani empire and what that means for U.S. investors. But before we get too far into the weeds... We would like to remind you that we are not financial advisors, so anything you hear on this show, you should consult a financial, legal, or accounting professional before you act on anything. Just in general, we want to exonerate ourselves from that liability, if you will. We're just a couple of uh, dumb college students. Yep. All right. Well, should we get into it then? We got a long show, so I think definitely. Okay. To start off, I don't know if you've heard about this, but something's going on in India. Do you know anything about that, Patrick? I have not heard of it. I know the word Adani is popping around here and there. It's, that's it for me. If you're like Patrick and have been scrolling through the Wall Street Journal when you want to avoid awkward encounters, hmm. you've probably seen the Adani empire topping the news stories for the last few weeks. Adani is one of the largest companies in India. They were popular with investors and traded with a premium. Um, because they had such a wide exposure within the Indian economy. It was popular with investors because they figured it would be on the leading edge of Indian economic growth. But essentially, this firm, Hindenburg Research, they're a short sellers, which are people who bet against market performance, are betting against the performance of a stock. Uh, They released a report detailing why they were short Adani, and some of the stuff that came out of it was actually pretty shocking. Do you have pulled up what Adani all does? So they have a lot of um, involvement in energy, energy, utilities, gas, as well as a lot of uh, media stuff and just a whole lot of just environmental stuff. Yeah. So essentially, they kind of have a broad swath of the Indian economy. Definitely. Um, I think they also have like ports and some transportation, that sort of thing. But this is coming directly from Hindenburg's report. They say, today we reveal the findings of our two-year investigation, presenting evidence that the $218 billion U.S. dollar Indian conglomerate Adani Group has engaged in brazen stock manipulation. They continue that even if you ignore the findings of our investigation and take the financials of Adani Group at face value, its seven key listed companies have 85% downside purely on a fundamental basis owing to high valuations. And like I mentioned before, investors are excited about the future of the Indian economy, um, so they're willing to pay a premium for that that you don't see in most developed nations. So key listed Adani companies have also taken on substantial debt. This is coming from the Hindenburg Report including pledging shares of their inflated stock for loans, putting the entire group on precarious financial footing. Five of seven key listed companies haven't reported current ratios below one, indicating near-term liquidity pressure. So the current ratio is the assets that can be converted into cash within a year divided by liabilities. And you might be wondering, why is pledging stock for a company a bad idea? Do you have any ideas, Patrick? I don't know that I do. Okay, so let's say I want to take out a... $100 loan for company A and pledge $140 of very risky stock in company Z as collateral, right? Okay. So that's, there's a 40% margin of safety there in the sense that the collateral is worth 140 and the loan I'm taking out is 100. But let's say that this stock that I pledged as collateral is so risky 
that it loses 50% very quickly and drops to $70. If I don't have easily convertible assets to make up the remaining $30, the company, company A, would default, right? Okay. However, what you've seen in a lot of these things that have gone downhill quickly is that company A, the company that just went default, that was pledged as collateral for a different loan. So oh. it just starts this domino effect. Surprisingly, I think for most investors, we haven't seen that with Adani, in part because of the assets that they have. Even if they're not easily convertible to cash, um, they've been able to, to back into loans. So real quick, I heard a term in there that I want to kind of sneak back and make sure that we just nail it. So default, what happens when um, something defaults? Yeah, so it... It can't pay its debt, and then it's forced to liquidate um, the assets it has to pay back shareholders Got of it. that company. Yeah. Okay. Um, another thing is the Adani Group had previously been a focus of four major government fraud investigations, totaling an estimated U.S. $17 billion. Yeah, this is kind of crazy just how big this company is. Like, it, if it's bigger than GE, General Electric, and BP combined, and there's just, like, just raw fraud, kind of crazy how, how much they can sneak under the radar. Now, I think the most concerning part of this as an investor is they did have an independent, an independent auditing firm go through their statements. Thank goodness, right? Yeah. Okay, but the group that went through their statement doesn't have a website. They only have 11 employees and four partners and have a net worth or a market cap. I guess those two concepts are different, but a market cap of $7.8 million. Okay. Now, to put that in perspective, the big four accounting firms which audit top 500 publicly traded U.S. companies have combined, the four have combined revenues of $190 billion. Huh. So, and what was the first number that you gave? $7.8 million was the market cap. Okay. And to go even farther, the audit partners, some of them were as young as 23 and 24 years old who signed off on the audit, of, you know, on the approvals for the audits. Okay. Which, at 23 and 24, I'm 19. Okay, that's like us in four years saying, okay, I'm trying to think, like, Caterpillar, I know, is even smaller than this. Signing off, okay, Caterpillar, your financial statements all look okay. So do you think this is something that just kind of sort of puts India behind or just sort of postpones their growth a little bit? I think Adani has done a great job of making the best of a worse situation, and their stock price has actually recovered since uh, the initial Hindenburg research report came out. However, I mean, there's no telling when the confidence of Americans or foreign investors to invest like they would have in the Indian economy will be going forward. However, I, I will say if there's money to be made, people will put the money there. Yeah. Um, but, but that does require uh, some tightening of restrictions and not having $8 million auditing firms <laughs> audit companies worth over $200 billion U.S. dollars. So now we're going to talk about how this relates, this story relates to the efficient market hypothesis. Efficient market hypothesis states that a stock price indicate all relevant information. Such information is shared universally, making it impossible for investors to earn above average returns consistently. And this is a very contested, to say the least, within the econ finance world, um, because it does seem to show from 2010 to 2020 that indexing has been outperforming most hedge fund or professional investors by a wide margin, and it's not even close. And index funding is like just a, a large group of companies, many companies? It's many companies, and it generally follows whether that be like the top 500 companies by market cap or- okay. You know, a NASDAQ or a Dow or so you're looking 500. At specifically one measure, sort of. Yeah, like specifically one measure and trying to get generally trying to get a broad overview of an economy 
or you could also do industry like the tech industry, transportation industry, etc., 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 etc. I don't know why that is such a hard word for me today. So let's say that Acola Airplanes, Airplanes. got to like the name of that, Sounds um, good. is expected to rise from $100 to $100 to $110, which is the same return as a bond with a similar risk would return over two years. Uh, it's priced against, you know, a bond market or other financial markets. However, at its annual earnings call, unfortunately, CEO George Acola announces that the future is gloomy in the plane industry and slashes these earnings projections. Realizing the bad news, Patrick, you're a smart investor. You rush to your computer to sell your shares <laughs> only to realize that the price is already at $80 a share and there's no steady decline. It's just all of a sudden in the in the blink of an eye, it goes from $100 to $80 a share. And I don't know, it, have you ever asked yourself like, why is this? Absolutely, especially with companies like Amazon and Apple, I've always been wondering like, if we know when they're gonna release a new iPhone and we know they're gonna make some money from it, why don't we just invest the day before they release it? I think that's a common misconception and I know people have probably lost a lot of money thinking that way but the way to think about this is in a market at the very basic core we think of institutions the big banks you know all the digital transaction goes on but at the very core you still need you need a buyer and you need a seller right and if the earnings projections are not positive for Apple in the future after an earnings report or, or for Amazon or you know any of those big companies or any company I'm not going to be willing to buy at a hundred dollars Okay. For yeah. like at the Acla Airplanes example, I'm not going to be willing to buy it at $100. In fact, no one should be willing to buy it at $100 or, you know, only 1% of people. And there's some people who are desperate to sell. So because they can't sell at $100, it goes down to 99 and then 98 until it hits resistance where it's back in equilibrium, where the number of buyers and the number of sellers is about equal at that new $80 price. Okay. And then another thing to note about the efficient market hypothesis is that it requires transparency of information. The U.S. makes up less than 25% of the world's GDP, yet they have 59% of the world's investment, which is a huge number. While this discrepancy isn't as big as you might seem uh, due to many U.S. companies, how they do business and operate overseas, they're actually traded at a premium to pretty much every other economy in the world. And the reason is in part due to the strict reporting standards from the SEC. And that's the Securities and Exchange Commission? Yep, so they make all the rules for when reports have to be filed, who, okay. who, who audits the reports, that sort of thing. So it would seem that because the transparency of information, it would be almost impossible to beat the market. And that's true. Over the past 20 years, only 10% of professional investors have beat the market. And I think the really interesting thing about that statistic is you would, you would think that, yeah, indexing works, but in 2008, 2009, the professional investors, they're smart. They see stuff is going to crash. They're going to bet against the market. And that just wasn't the case um, to the extent that only 10% have beat it. And one of the biggest reasons behind the criticism of the efficient market hypothesis, though, is market bubbles. And that leads our next segment with Patrick Scott, giving <laughs> you the history lesson, right? Right. Yeah. So let's figure out what, what, mar what market bubbles are. So today we're going to be talking about the 2001 tech bubble or the dot-com crash. You might have heard heard of it before. It's not exactly quite as well known as like the 2008 recession. Um, so yeah, let's just get into it. So basically to give you some context, there was a huge emergence of internet and electronic technology, right? So this is at near the intro. 
or a little after the intro of the World Wide Web. So the internet is just kicking it into full gear. So that coincided with low inflation rates. So that encouraged um, a whole lot of startup companies. So you could just make a, your own company online. Uh, you didn't have to have like a brick and mortar store or anything. And you could just totally sell products or whatever um, off off of your website. So what is a dot-com company? So a dot-com company is one that does, as we said, most or all of its business online. So no brick and mortar store. Well, not necessarily anyways, but think of companies like um, Amazon, right? So you're not going to go to an Amazon store and buy whatever it is you're, you're going to buy. You're going to go on amazon.com. So what is a bubble, George? Is there any, I guess, difference between like the analogy of an actual bubble and an economic bubble? Yeah, so I, I guess what you could say is like on a bubble, when you're out on the inside, you don't really know that you are. You no. can't really tell that things are expanding. But like a balloon or like a bubble, there comes a point when it pops and it has it gets too big. It's growing too fast, too quickly. Um, There's not enough to sustain it and it eventually pops. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can't say if I've ever been in a bubble. Um, Not to my knowledge anyway. So... Then, George, another question for you. What determines if a market is a bull market, and that's one uh, that where the markets are going up and looking good, um, or if or if the market is going to be a bear market going down? If I could tell you like with certainty what this was, I probably wouldn't be here. I would be living on a yacht on, on the coast <laughs> because a lot of when people talk about a bear market and a bull market, a lot of it's speculation. Um, so you can look back in history and say, oh, yeah, that was a great bull market or, oh, that was a great bear market because you saw it going down. But if that were the case, if I knew that we were in a bear market right now, a true bear market where st things were in general going down or going sideways, I wouldn't put money in the stock market. And if I had the intuition to know it was a bull market, of course, I'm going to put money in the stock market. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of the de designation, it, this is my personal opinion, is people being able to backtest it and, and go back in time and saying this was a bear and this was a bull market. Um, but I, I don't think there's there's really a way while you're in one to know what you're in. Okay. So, and for my last question uh, for a little bit before we really get into the nitty gritty of the story. So what is the NASDAQ? Yeah, the NASDAQ is, it's over 3,000 companies now, uh, some of the top companies. And it's just like an index of those companies. But it is important to note that the more valuable the company, the more weight it has. I believe Apple has 12% of the NASDAQ. Okay. So it's not like, oh, Apple makes up one three thousandth of the NASDAQ. It, gotcha. It's weighted more towards the larger, larger tech companies in specific. Yeah, so that's what we really got to focus on here. It's the technology companies. So getting into the story, on March 6, 2000, the NASDAQ price peaked at about 5,000, and two months later, it was at 3,600 and diving. On September 30th, 2002, the NASDAQ hit an eight-year low at 1,139. And so from 1995 to 2000, the NASDAQ had increased fivefold just for it to lose almost 80% of its value. So when the bubble burst and investors realized that they overestimated the value of a lot of these tech companies, lots of online startups failed, but there were some that survived. So many that survived became quite successful because of the re removal of that competition. So in other words, if you had a business in a relatively new industry with some competitors and then many of them disappeared, your business market share is going to go up, right? And to real quick, just super mega simplify market share. If there are two customers and two companies and one supplying uh, one customer and one supplying the other and one of those companies goes out, then all of a sudden that one company that's left is supplying both customers. So it has 100% of the market share. Yeah, exactly. From a broader perspective, 
We also kind of got to keep in mind that 9-11 played a bit of a part in the economic downturn. So from uh, the 9th to the 16th of September in 2001, the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, lost 1,400, um, going from 9,600 to 8,200. But it promptly returned to its pre-9-11 position within a month. The thing to remember with 9-11, too, is bad of an event as it was, the way that we recovered from 9-11, I think, gave a lot of confidence to investors, too, that the U.S. wasn't going to go away. The U.S. was a resilient economy. All right. So some of the notable companies that were affected are Amazon. At the turn of the century, Amazon was at $5.30, and then it went down as low as $0.30 cents in September 2001. However, it survived, and that's more than a lot of companies, online retailers could say. As for those companies that did not survive the crash, some of the more notable ones, um, Pets.com, Webvan, which was a California-based sort of, I guess like a, um, I don't know, like a, a DoorDash or Uber Eats for your groceries before it was cool. Um, and Boo.com is another, another um, Swedish-based on- online retailer. Those were some of the more notable companies that uh, shut down permanently. So in your opinion, Patrick, I mean, you've you've been the one doing the research about this. Um, what do you think the cause of the dot-com boom was? I know you talked about how 9-11 specifically wasn't necessarily the cause um, so in your opinion, kind of what was the major factors leading into that? Yeah, so it's kind of a tricky question, like what caused it? Because there's also the idea of what triggered it. Like, like what was the spark that sort of lit the fuse that sent the markets down? Um, but, but as far as the general cause of the crash, I personally, um, for my research, believe it was just investor gullibility, put a word to it. So going back to that, uh, what I think is a really great Alan Greenspan term, the irrational exuberance. So people were just discovering the wonders and glories of the World Wide Web. And add to that, the excess of venture capital. And you've got a bit of a perfect storm and they had everyone had dollar signs in their eyes yeah so i'm actually going to disagree with you a little here um so i i do agree that people were gullible with their money but i i think it's hard to know what a bubble is when you're inside one we made that analogy you're inside you can't see that right. it's expanding i think one that comes to mind for me is i remember i would have been in i believe middle school at the time but when bitcoin first broke ten thousand dollars i remember thinking to myself this thing is worth nothing there's no way it can ever go back to ten thousand dollars and especially when it dropped below that um after a, a sharp period where it went up to fifteen thousand i just thought to myself and laughed like this thing is never gonna make it back to anything of value um only to find out couple years later that it was at 60 over well over $60,000. Not that my opinion has necessarily changed about Bitcoin and its value, but as as we like to say here that's another topic for another day. Another thing that I think we need to bring attention to is that being early is the same thing as being wrong. And what I mean by that is a lot of people who predicted the tech bubble burst, if they saw the signs coming, most of them would have, and most a lot of them did, short the market or sell out of their assets in 1995, 1996, when tech stocks were first becoming much more overvalued. And maybe that wasn't necessarily the dot-com quite at that point. But like we said, if they would have just taken that money, kept it in the stock market, and ridden it out, they would have actually been better off um, than selling when it was still relatively low at that point. And like I said, with the Bitcoin story, most people, when it when it went up you know, past a few hundred dollars, or in my case, over $10,000, this is a bubble. It's never going to go back there. So I think it's just hard to know where you are 
a lot of people, Michael Burry, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie about 2008, The Big Short. I have not seen it, but I, I, I do know the name a little bit. So Michael Ver- Burry, he has been shorting and, you know, telling people to short really since, you know, 2008 and the aftermath of that. A lot of people since, you know, 2012, 2013 have been constantly saying the stock market is overvalued. I was talking to a professor last week who said, you know, for the last 20 years, it's been overvalued. Um, So have we been in a bubble for 20 years and we just haven't realized it? Are we in a bubble right now? I think a lot of times it is hard to know. Who knows? So to end the show today, we want to bring you one more quote from a famous investor. And this one is going to come from one that we talked about last week, not Warren Buffett, but Benjamin Graham. If you'll remember, if you listened to uh, last week's episode, Benjamin Graham, uh, was maybe the first major U.S. investor. He wrote the book, The Intelligent Investor, and that was sort of a model for Warren Buffett um, in his early years. So Benjamin Graham says, the individual investor should act consistently as an investor and not as a speculator. George, what do we have here? I think that no matter the conditions for which you're trying to invest, you need to stay firm to your strategy. If you're trying to chase every new invention, every new technology, not saying there's not a place for that, but people get so caught up in what if, what if this is the next Apple? What if this company, this small company is the next Google? Um, and then they get so caught up in that they run up the stock price to levels that even extraordinary growth couldn't justify its price. I think speculators, you think about that maybe in like the betting terms and yeah, you might pick, you might get confirmation bias cause you pick it right once or twice. But over the course of time, if you stay to what you're good at, you're going to have much, much better sustained results over time. And I think people are really, I guess, emotionally motivated or encouraged to be speculators because they see they, they, they regret like not doing things earlier for certain companies like everyone regrets not buying Netflix or Home Depot or Amazon or Apple or whatever it is. So it's like, okay, next time I don't want to be caught left behind. So I'm going to, I'm going to make it early. I'm going to be an early investor and and I'm going to make it a lot of money. Patrick, I think that's a great insight to end the show on. You know what Warren Buffett says that when other people are being greedy, that's when you need to be fearful. And I think that's what a lot of this speculation boils down to. Um, But that's all the time we have left for today. We're thrilled that you chose to join us today, even if that was for only a minute. And we look forward to you guys tuning in next week. Thank you. Thank you.